Good to see everyone here this morning. My name is Pastor Keith. I'm the executive pastor here at Multiple Church, like Norman, Pastor Zach, and Jenna are out this Sunday. And so I get the honor and the privilege to be able to preach the word. And so today we're going to jump right in. We are in a series called Alter. So our word of the year is altered. Alter, altered. It's a play on run on words because we believe when you before you go before God, you come to the altar, you are altered, you are changed. We believe that when you experience God's presence, you don't leave his presence unchanged. You are altered. And so that's the word of the year. That is a series that we're in right now. And we're finding the relevance of the altar. How many of you have been to, say, five plus churches in your lifetime? A lot of hands are raised. So when you, when you walk into a church, every church is set up differently. Every church has a different atmosphere, different style. Every church has different uh, doctrines or liturgy, the way that they worship and the way that they communicate with God. And so all the churches, there's so many different types of churches, but in most churches you walk in, there is an altar, a, a place of which the worship team might stand, a place where the pastor or priest might preach the word of God. It's an altar. It's a reverent place of God. And in some churches, the altar is like a guarded facility. Like you walk in and there's like stanchions up. You can't, you can't get to the actual altar. Some churches, like our church, it's, it's very open. You can come to the altar and pray and weep and cry your eye, eyes out, and, and that's a good thing. We believe in this church, and we believe through our doctrine that an altar is more so of a sacred place. So you could get on your knees right now and declare that your chair is your altar because you are separating the reverence of God from their outside surroundings. It is an intentional act of saying, God, this place is holy. The altar is a holy place. So what you declare holy is your altar before God. So yes, this is an altar. Yes, you can declare your chair as an altar this morning, and at the end, you can kneel down at your chair and say, God, I am at your altar. I receive your presence. I am pursuing you. Do we have an understanding of what the altar is? You cannot go to an altar, the reverent place of God, acknowledging his presence and be unchanged. That's how powerful God is. He changes you when you're humble before him. Altars in scripture, in the Old Testament, was mainly used as burnt offerings. So in Leviticus chapter 6, verse 12, it says, the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. And so the fire is a powerful, powerful symbolism of God's work, his manifestation and his work. And so the altar in the Old Testament was mainly used for burnt offerings. So what would happen is the Israelites would sin, and instead of praying to God like we do now, they would take an, an offering to God and have it burnt and sacrificed on the altar. So how many are glad that we don't have to provide doves or goats or lambs anymore for when we sin? This would be an ugly, ugly scene, an ugly place up here, right? Our altar now is because we get to have our own space and our own place because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, which means Jesus paid the price for our sins, so we no longer have to have an altar to burn sacrifices on because Jesus already paid the price. He already came. He died. And we now live in the new covenant of which Jesus died for our sins. So the altar now is a, just a place that we designate to encounter his presence. Where do we scripturally find a place where we find the manifestation of God's presence? 
In 1 Kings, Solomon chapter, or 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon is bringing the Ark of the Covenant, covenant which represents to the Israelites the most powerful presence of God. That is where God, that's where his manifestation of God was. And so such power in the Ark of the Covenant that Solomon decided to build a huge temple for it. And so as we pick up in verse 6, it says, Then the priests carried the Ark of the Lord's Covenant into the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and placed it beneath the wings of the cherubim. When the priests came out of the holy place, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not continue their service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. Now that's a service I would like to attend. That's a service I would want to be at. A thick cloud, not, not a smoke machine, right? Not, we're not a church that uses smoke machines. But this, there's, there's some churches that use smoke machines and, and create the atmosphere of an emotional response to God. No, this was actually God's presence in a cloud of smoke. That's terrifying, but also exciting. It's the glory of God. It was the presence of God that was experienced called the Shekinah glory. And we find these stories of the burning bush and the cloud that rested on Mount Sinai with Moses. We find the Shekinah was often pictured as a cloud or pillar of fire, and it was referred to as the glory of God. Where else do we find that God shows up in a very tangible way? I think about in Exodus 33, where Moses says, now show me your glory to God. Moses is literally saying, God, show me your glory. Further in that story, it says, And then the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. How powerful is the presence of God that we can't see his face? Not even Moses, the, an all-star of the Bible. I would venture to guess that no one has seen the face of God here today. Can I make that assumption? Has anyone seen the face of God? If you had, I probably would say you wouldn't be alive to be here today. How many, though, can say they have felt God's presence? Can you raise your hand if you felt God's presence? Maybe you felt it because he's protected you from a situation. Maybe, has anyone been on the highway driving and you narrowly miss a wreck and you say, thank you, Jesus, for protecting me? That is feeling God's active presence in your life. Maybe some of you had had an illness, a disease, or something that God has intervened on your behalf and has healed you, and you have felt physically his presence heal you. Maybe he's given you a financial blessing in a time that you needed it the most. These are all miracles. These are all things that God has provided for you. And when these things happen, we have an awareness of God's intervention on our lives. Yet, I've never seen God, but I believe in God. I've never seen God's face, but God has blessed me. God has provided for me. God has protected me. God has shown up in my life when I needed him the most. God has always been there for me, but yet I haven't seen God's face. There's a difference between living in the omnipresence of God and living in his presence by actively pursuing him. So what's the omnipresence of God? 
Many people get confused of what the omnipresence of God is, but the reality is that it means God is everywhere all at once. Everywhere all at once. Now, when we preach something, when we tell you something, we have to back it up by Scripture. If the Word of God doesn't say it, then don't believe it. There's many pastors out there that don't use the Word of God. This church, Pastor Zach, myself, Pastor Manny, the multiplied family of churches, we use Scripture in our messages because if you don't, then it's just opinion, right? And you get a lot of opinions everywhere else. And so you don't come to church to hear an opinion. You come to church to hear the Word of God. So where does the Word of God talk about the omnipresence of God? Psalms 139, verse 7. It says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Jeremiah 23 also states, can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him? Declares the Lord, do not I fill heaven and earth? God is everywhere. He's omnipresent, he, which means he's present everywhere. For most pragmatic people, for those who are realists, even those who are atheists, or maybe sometimes it's you that you doubt the existence of God, believing in the omnipresence of God is very difficult. When I went through difficult periods in my life of doubting God's existence, I always came back to the idea of living by faith and not by sight. You find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Live by faith, not by sight. Why did I always come back to that firm foundation? Because I would have to believe, I would have to have just as much faith or more faith to believe that God didn't create everything, didn't create me, than to believe that it happened by accident. You see, the creation of the earth and the universe has to happen by accident in some way or some power. And you have to have faith in that to believe that actually happened. So nothing coming from nothing has to have faith. And so if you call a Christian crazy for having faith that God created the heavens and earth, you have to have faith that something else created the heavens and earth. And that from nothing and nothing created something means that there is a divine creator. There's faith involved on both sides. Even though you might be pragmatic, even though you might be an atheist and not believe in God, you still have to have faith that creation happened somehow because you didn't see it. You didn't see the creation of the earth. You didn't see the creation of of life, of humanity. If you don't see it, you have to have faith. And so I choose to have faith that I was divinely created for a plan and a purpose. I have faith that the earth is put perfectly in the position in the universe, not too close to the sun to burn up and not too far away from the sun to freeze, that we are perfectly placed because there is a divine hand interceding on our behalf. That is the faith that I believe. It's not by sight. I don't see God face to face, but I feel God. I know God intervenes on my behalf. I know God protects me. I know God holds his hand of favor upon my family. I know God intervenes when I need him the most, not because I see it, but because I feel it. Amen? Come on. Amen? I would have to say that there's very practical application as well to God's presence. For instance, is God at Chick-fil-A today? Yes, of course. It's God's food. I mean, it's Sunday, but God's always there. God is always at Chick-fil-A. Is God at McDonald's today? That's debatable. (laughs) That one's debatable. I don't know if God is at McDonald's, right? The correct answer is yes. God is at McDonald's right now. Is everyone aware of God's presence at McDonald's? No. 
you guys are crazy. Is everyone experiencing God's presence at McDonald's right now? That's a better way to phrase it. No, no. God might be at McDonald's. His presence is there. But is everyone going through the drive through line at McDonald's frustrated that they're sitting in the line forever? Are they experiencing God's presence? No, they are not. His presence is everywhere, but that doesn't mean his presence is being acknowledged. There's a difference between acknowledging his presence in our lives, and that means that we must live in his presence. So we acknowledge that God is everywhere, but there's also a mentality of living in his presence. So when Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says, to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul is writing Ephesians, and this verb filled in this passage that's being utilized implies a continual action. It indicates that Paul had in mind an ongoing infilling experience with the Spirit rather than a once and for all infilling of the Spirit. He's talking about that it's a continual action of recognize God's presence in your life. There's a difference between having the knowledge of God and knowing God, right? Come on. You, people can read the Bible and know facts about God, facts about the stories of God, the stories of Scripture. There's a difference between knowing God and knowing God in your heart. Knowing God in your heart is living with his presence, actively pursuing God in his presence. It means that it's not just a prayer to cover your whole week once, in, once a week in church. It means that you pray to God every day. Not just every day, but moment by moment throughout your day because you don't know what's coming your way. You don't know what's going to come that day. And so it's an active relationship with God because it's active communication. You see, communication isn't a one-way street. It's not just asking God for something. It's also being available to receive from God. That is living in his presence. It's making time in your schedule to live in the presence of God, to ask him for things, to rely on things, and to sit in his blessings, to receive his blessings. How many need a perspective change sometimes when you're sitting at work and it's a tough day? But guess what? You have a job. You're at work. You have the ability, the health to do your job. Amen? Sometimes it's a perspective change living in his presence, seeing the blessings around you and thanking God for them. How many of you have a thankful heart saying, God, thank you for today. Thank you for the breath that I breathe. Thank you for the health. Thank you for the health of my kids. Thank you for my life. Thank you for the presence that is going before me. How many need the perspective change of knowing that living in his presence means that we are joyful people? I have the joy of the Lord in my heart. Do you have the joy of the Lord in your heart? That means that I actively seek his presence throughout my day. It's not a stop and go. Prayer is not just a prayer and a period Prayer should be an open statement. Don't pray to begin your day and say, thank you, Lord, amen, and go about your day and forget about God. It's a, you pray, you say, thank you, Lord, and then you're open for the rest of the day to praying to God. How many students are in here under the age of 18? A couple of you, a couple of you. All right. So what do you do when you have a test? You're supposed to study, right? You study for that test, right? So your first prayer should be, God, I pray you help me prepare for this test. Help me to study the right material on the test, right? Every good student says amen, yes, okay? Then the morning of your test, you wake up in the morning and you say, God, help me to remember all the things that I studied, right? Amen. And then you get to your test and you say, God, I pray that you help me do the best of my ability on this test, It's a continual action. You see how it's not just, God, help me on this test, one prayer. It's like, God, help me through the preparation of this test. God, help me in the morning of this test. God, help me perform on this test. 
okay? That's a spirit of living in his presence in our lives. We have to prepare ourselves for the presence of God and actively pursue the presence of God in our lives. Last week's message by Pastor Zach, the author of prayer is a perfect example of living in his presence. Our goal is to have a habitual habit of praying, not just one time, but throughout your day. You are to be living in his presence. At no time, if you call Jesus your Savior, in your day should you be out of his presence and his will. You are to be continually living in his presence and in his will. And how many know that is almost impossible to do? It's really hard because sin gets in the way of that. Sin separates us from God. So anytime we sin, we are separating ourselves from God and his will. And all of us are sinful beings. And if you don't think you're a sinful being, just watch two-year-olds for a couple hours and you'll know that every person is created with a sinful mindset, with a sinful being. Amen? Okay? I didn't have to teach my son how to sin. He was born with the ability to sin. Amen? Come on, parents. You know this about yourselves. We are sinful beings. That's why surrendering is a constant battle. Living in his presence means actively pursuing God and actively asking for forgiveness. I mean, come on. I actively have to say, Jesus, forgive me for what thought. What did I just think? Forgive me for this action. Forgive me for the words that I said. Forgive me for the attitude that I had towards my family, towards my children, towards my career, towards my coworkers. Lord, I need your Holy Spirit because your spirit is supernatural. And sometimes I need that supernatural patience in my life. Amen? Sometimes I need that supernatural self-control in a moment where I should break. Sometimes I need the supernatural of joy. How many need joy in your lives? Sometimes we need that supernatural action of joy when times are bad. That's when the Holy Spirit shows up in our lives. That's what living in his presence means. We also can't live in his presence actively and be alone and be isolated. It means being active in a part of a community that encourages one another and actively holds you accountable. Being a Lone Ranger Christian means that you are isolated and you are available and vulnerable for attack. Being with a group of Christians means that you can hold someone's hands up when they're struggling and they can hold your hands up when you're struggling. Being part of a group, being held accountable, being with other Christians in a Christian community, going to church will help you live in his presence because without it, you will be isolated and attacked and you will fall away from his presence. Join a group. Join a group, come to church, create friends who have the same faith, that share your faith, Hold each other accountable and be there for one another when you need it the most. So what's the difference between understanding the omnipresence that God is everywhere, living in his presence on an active day-to-day basis, and then hosting his manifest presence? The omnipresence, of course, he's everywhere. Living in his presence is an active relationship with, with Jesus. But the manifest presence is an active pursuit of the signs and wonders of God, the miracles of God. The omnipresence of God can exist without our awareness, but the manifest presence cannot. For the point of manifest presence of the Lord is that our awareness of him is awakened to the reality defined by him. So what's examples of the manifest presence of God? Well, we can talk about Moses encountering God in the burning bush. We can talk about Solomon dedicating the temple of the Lord and the ark being brought in and the, the Shekinah glory, the smoke. We can talk about the Holy Spirit descending in the upper room with manifestations of tongues of fire, shaking and speaking in tongues. We can also talk just about the whole book of Acts is like the manifestation of 
the Holy Spirit. They're clear, distinct signs of God's presence. There's a difference between knowing God's presence is, and, is everywhere, living in God's presence intentionally, and pursuing distinct signs and miracles and wonders of God within your life. Most times in Scripture, we see the manifestation and the presence of God with like the heroes of the Bible, the all-stars, the ones who make the great decisions and God's anointing is clearly upon them. Like we see David and Solomon and Moses and even Paul in the New Testament. But there is good news for you and me. Normal people like you and me who were not all-stars in the Bible can host the presence of God. A perfect example of that is in the Ark of the Covenant, the story of that when it's being moved to Jerusalem, David was the first, when he first became king, wanted to move the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. He, he wanted to because the Ark of the Covenant was significant in Israelites' culture. It's because the Ark of the Covenant was the manifest presence of God. It symbolizes the manifest presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant to the Israelites meant that God was right there. That symbolizes his power, his presence. That God was in the Ark of the Covenant, and that was a powerful symbol of their country, for their culture. So bringing the ark into Jerusalem, David is declaring that everything about the nation would be centered and around God, which is important because in that time period and cultures around them, there were a lot of false gods. There were a lot of false religions. And the Israelites were tempted by all of these false religions. So by David declaring, bringing the ark of the covenant into Jerusalem, he is saying that our government is going to be worshiping God. Our political system is going to be revolved around the presence of God. It is like us doing something and bringing it to Washington, D.C. and putting a huge cross in the middle of the National Mall and saying, our government is now declared Christian, okay? So just to put it in perspective, we obviously can't do that, won't do that in different areas and political things. But what David, the leader of the Israelites, is doing is saying our government, our culture, is going to be centered around the presence of God. So bringing the Ark of the Covenant started out in the city that was far away. And so they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. They put it on a cart. The cart was being dragged by oxen. And so as they were bringing that in, God gave them specific instructions on how to move the Ark. And one of the specific instructions was the Ark was not to be touched. You cannot touch the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, if you were not a Levite from the tribe of priests, you cannot handle the Ark or be in the presence of the Ark once it's in its place. And so knowing all of this, they still drug the Ark on the backs of a cart that was being drugged by an oxen. And on its way up, the oxen stumbled. And one of the people who was there watching and following the Ark, his name is Uzziah, he put his hand out to stable the ark, and the second he touched the ark of the covenant, God was aroused and struck him dead. He struck this guy dead for putting his hand on the ark so that it would not fall to the ground. David, after seeing this, got really afraid. So afraid that he said, we're stopping the processional. We're not bringing the ark into Jerusalem. We cannot bring it in. And so what did David do? For three months, he placed it at this guy's house named Obed-Edom. How many of you, be, be truthful, how many of you have heard the name Obed-Edom in the Bible? A couple of you, okay? There's three mentions of Obed-Edom in the Bible. And after studying, it looks like there could be multiple Obed-Edoms. But this Obed-Edom is a Gittite, which means Obed-Edom the Gittite is a Philistine name, okay? 
So the other Obed-Edoms in the Bible talk about how they served in the presence of the Lord at the temple. They were actually Jewish people. This one, it looks like, is Obed-Edom, the Gittite, a Philistine Gentile name. So what happens when David stops the processional? He chooses this guy, Obed-Edom, the Gittite, the Philistine, the Gentile's house to put the Ark of the Covenant in. And it says in 2 Samuel 6.11, the Ark of the Lord remained there in Obed-Edom's house for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his entire household. The Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his entire household. Can you write this down for me? Can you write this down? The presence of the Lord remained there in Keith's house, and the Lord blessed Keith and his entire household. You can insert your own name there. And the, the presence of the Lord remained there in Walt's house, and the Lord blessed Walt and his entire household. The Lord blessed the entire household because they hosted the presence of God. Who was this guy? This guy was a nobody. He was no one. He was a Philistine. He wasn't even Jewish. He was a Gentile. But what did he do? He was available. He was available. He was at the right place at the right time. You are here this morning at the right place at the right time. You are available for the Holy Spirit. You're watching online at the right time because God wants you to hear this message about the Holy Spirit. We are available just like Obed-Edom. We are available because of proximity. What else did he do? He complied. Scripture doesn't tell us if Obed-Edom had a choice. David chose his household probably because it was close in proximity to where David just saw one of his men die. Do you think they wanted to drag that all the way out of the, across the country or more miles? They probably wanted to get rid of it as fast as possible. And so Obed-Edom was chosen. David chose his house. He wasn't special, but he was close by. He was at the right place at the right time. There was an opportunity and he complied to the request. So Obed-Edom now found himself hosting God's presence. He was not qualified. He wasn't a Levite from the tribe of priests. He was not even Jewish. He was a Philistine. He was a Gentile. But when it comes to hosting the presence, we must understand that when God chooses you and you host his presence, you will be blessed by that. You will be blessed by his presence. Your life will be changed by hosting the presence. And the opportunity is very practical, acknowledging he is there and then putting our spiritual lens on and asking for the divine, asking for the divine. I, I believe that God still works in the divine. I still believe in the miracles and wonders. I still believe in divine healing for people who need healing. I still believe that God actively has his hand on our lives. I still believe in the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, that you can be baptized in the Holy Spirit and you can speak in tongues. We're a Pentecostal church. That those are things that we don't shy away from. I'm not telling you, I'm not preaching you that there's an emotional experience between you and God. Very much so there's an emotional experience, but there's also a practicality of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that gives you a boldness and a courage in your life that des you desperately need, especially living in this culture and time. We believe that the Holy Spirit is an active agent within our lives. 
You see, there's two separate, separate beliefs of the Holy Spirit as well that we believe. When you are saved, when you ask Jesus to come into your life, we believe that the Holy Spirit then is invited into your life. That's where your conscience comes into play. That's when the leading and guiding, of the, that's when the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, that comes into play. When you ask Jesus into your heart, the Holy Spirit now is an active agent in declaring that over your life and convicting you of the things, right? We also believe of the indwelling and the manifestations of the Holy Spirit in your life when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's a separate experience that we also believe in. And so we believe in this church that the Holy Spirit has a very active way to touch your life. An active way that's very practical, but it's all about hosting His Spirit. It's all about asking God for the divine. You see, if I run into an old college buddy at Home Depot and we chat for a few minutes and we missed each other and we haven't seen each other in a while and we say at the end of that conversation, we should grab coffee together. We have very good intentions, right? We have good intentions. We would love to grab coffee together and we might see each other by coincidence again and catch up, but there's nothing intentional. There's no plan, no exchanging of numbers, no plans created. And that's great at all if it happens, but from my experience, that probably won't happen when you run into someone. That's how many of us are with God's presence. Our intentions are good. Sometimes he shows up in our lives and sometimes we run into him during a worship song and an at an altar call and that's great, that's wonderful, that's awesome, but are we intentional about his presence? If I went home after seeing my college buddy and I talked to my wife and said, hey, let's make a plan to have them over and I text him and we make a plan, a date, a time, we clean the house, we prepare a meal, we prepare dessert, we get coffee ready, right? That is another level of hosting his presence. That's a preparation within my heart and with my life. It's a preparation of saying, okay, now I have this idea, let's make a plan and put it into action. When we think about hosting the presence of God, it's making a plan and putting it into action. God's presence is everywhere, but Odom, Edom's household was chosen to acknowledge the presence of God and he was available and he was blessed by it. The result of hosting God's presence in this passage says, and the Lord blessed Obed, Edom and his entire household. The difference between acknowledging the presence and hosting his presence is the blessing of his household. Can we all stand for a moment this morning? When I read Joshua 24, 15, it reads, but for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. There's an of saying, I'm going to serve the Lord in hosting his presence. There's an aspect of acknowledging who God is, who Jesus is, and acknowledging the Holy Spirit is welcome into my life. Can we say, I, you, I welcome you, Holy Spirit, into my life? Can we lift our hands for a moment and say, I welcome you in your presence in my life. For me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Insert your name there. For me and my house, keep the men's house. We will serve the Lord. I welcome your today at Multiply Church. We can't wait to see you again next week, either in person or online, as we continue to love Jesus and change the world.